Welcome to Scholastic Reads, our podcast about books, authors, and the joy and power of reading. I'm your host, Suzanne McCabe, Editor-at-Large at Scholastic. Thank you for joining us. We need diverse books. One cannot say that enough. Today, Arthur Levine joins us in the studio. Arthur has his own imprint at Scholastic, Arthur A. Levine Books. Many of you will know him as the U.S. editor of J.K. Rowling's Harry Potter series. Later on, we'll talk by phone with Francisco Stork, who was born in Mexico and grew up in Texas. His most recent YA novel, The Memory of Light, tackles the difficult topic of teen depression. Just a note of caution here to parents and teachers. Francisco will be reading an excerpt from his book that describes the narrator's suicide attempt. It may be confusing or upsetting to young people who are listening. We'll also speak with Mike Jung in Oakland, California. Mike is a founding member of We Need Diverse Books a grassroots organization that promotes literature that reflects and honors the lives of all young people. Mike made a big splash with his first novel, Geeks, Girls, and Secret Identities. His latest book is called Unidentified Suburban Object. Okay, let's start with Arthur. It's a great privilege to be sitting in the same room with the great Arthur A. Levine. Welcome, Arthur. Shaw, thank you. <laughs> so thank you again for being here. Um, you have a reputation at Scholastic for acquiring titles about people and topics that have historically been underrepresented in literature. What draws you to these titles? You know, I, I think that's very interesting. I, I think that it has to do with what the overall process is um, of of publishing books, um, if you're a publisher and if you're trying to, you know, have a larger purpose, like to tell the story of life, um, you know, life isn't told from one perspective, and nor is it understood from one perspective. So, if you really want to get at the the richness of the story and the truth of the story. Um, you have to look at a lot of different places, and you have to listen. How did you acquire that lesson in life? <laughs> you know, I, I think that that's uh, a lesson that just comes naturally to me. I think as uh, growing up uh, Jewish, um, often in contexts where I was a, that was made me a minority, um, I think that I come to the world not from the perspective of um, belonging to the majority culture. Uh, so I think it's natural for me to say, okay, where, where am I going to understand the truth? Um, it's, not, it's not only going to be from the stories I'm hearing. You're going to have to look a little deeper. Right. Okay. In recent years, there's been a huge push for diversity in children's literature. You, of course, were ahead of the curve on that and giving a voice to authors of all backgrounds. Could you talk about Scholastic's efforts in this area? You know, how far have we come and what work remains to be done? Well, you know, I'm here. This is an effort by Scholastic. Um, uh, so I think Scholastic um, has really embraced this, the, the understanding that we need diverse books. Um, I think that um, I've always felt supported in my efforts to bring different voices to the table. Um, I, I think Scholastic has never looked at that as only a charity effort. You know, some of my greatest best-selling authors um, are people who come from non-majority cultures. Sean Tan, uh, the Arrival is my best-selling picture book of all time. And, you know, no one at Scholastic said, oh, you shouldn't do that because, you know, books by minorities don't sell or anything like that. So I think that's been consistent. Okay, you have quite a stack of books here that I have yeah. to take note of. And yeah. you want to talk about that a little bit? 
oh, you know, these are just various books and authors I've enthusiastically published over the years. Just it was sort of to remind me from my my first books through recent years. And we've been very proud to, you know, launch the children's book careers of people like Eric Gansworth and Mike Jung, whom you're gonna talk about. We were so proud to be the publisher behind Varian Johnson. Yes. Um, and to to see that whole that was one of the early um moments of of coalescing in support of a book that is that should be a bestseller mm-hmm. right it is a great caper um and uh, you know it, the fact that it has a minority minority protagonist uh just makes it more interesting the great green heist and i i was really pleased that we could be the we could focus the book selling and um so, and librarian and uh, all the supportive communities to make that a success. And we, we've been thrilled to be Francisco Stork's um, publisher and to see his career um, blossom. And and that's another, you, you raise a point here with Varian Johnson of not having a token or a symbol, a child serving as representing a group, but just interacting the way in the past any a, a white child would in, a, in the context of a plot or a story. Right. I mean, we believe very strongly that um, there isn't just one story that writers of color need to tell. It needs to be a serious story of struggle. It can be, if that is a story that the writer wants to tell, but um, Lisa Yee's debut um, in the world and on my list was Millicent Men, Girl Genius. Come up a bit. <laughs> she has, but, you know, that was, she was the, I was so proud that she was the winner of the first Sid Fleischman Award for Humor. Um, you know, that was the thing, the award that she won, which was great, because her book was funny, and she's a funny writer. Um, it, it had a lot of heart, too, and it was about intelligence and the varying, various different ways we can be intelligent. But And she was also Chinese-American, Millicent Min, um, as is Lisa Yee. But. I follow Lisa Yee on Facebook. She's quite zany. She is zany. <laughs> she is zany and smart. She's very smart. Uh, now, you've got a few other books here. I do. I've got, you know... Upcoming, uh, you know, just just out now, Cleo Edison Oliver, Playground Millionaire by Sunday Frazier. I think what? one of, Playground what? Millionaire. Playground Millionaire. <laughs> oh. Cleo is like a budding Oprah. You know, she is just a girl who wants to be an entrepreneur, and you know that in twenty years she is going to be the CEO of a Fortune 500 company. But right now, she's just a middle schooler <laughs> with a lot of, like, crazy ideas. And um, she's, you know, uh, an, an African-American girl in a, in a, adopted into a mixed-race family, and she's dealing with her identity as um, being, you know, as an adopted person, a child who has been adopted. Um, but she's, first and foremost you know, wanting to be a successful entrepreneur. And it's a great, it's a wonderful, um, I think the thing I love about this is that it's a young, it's a, it's a young chapter book series, a young middle grade. Um, and I think it's important to have uh, books of all ages be diverse, you know, not just, not just young adult novels, for instance. And can you tell us a little bit about the author? Sunday Fraser, sure. Um, she is the author of Brendan Buckley, um, the Brendan Buckley books that, uh, that uh, made a big splash. Um, but this is her debut on the Arthur A. Levine books list. We're very proud of it. Oh, that's wonderful, Arthur. Now, we, you clearly we've made great strides in these books. Books like these were not available to children in previous generations. But what still keeps you up at night? What still is left to be done? There is so much. I just wondered if there's there are burning issues that you're eager to tackle. Um, you know, I don't think of things as as issuey so much um, as I always think there are great voices to discover. I think, you know, every day I don't know um, what I'm going to click on, uh, what document I'm going to open or what envelope I'm going to open and discover something amazing. Um, as a reader, I've never, I never feel like I've read the last book. Um, and I think um, 
the way that reading interacts with my life um, I'm, is that I'm, I'm constantly reading books and reflecting back on my experiences and gaining insight and um, searching. Uh, and I think that that search will never stop for me as a reader, and therefore it would never stop for me as a publisher, you know. Well, you mentioned before we started recording you have a middle school son. I you do. Must... I have a sixth grader. Oh, you must enjoy reading to him. I love reading to him. I love watching him read. I was going to say, what insights does he provide for you? I imagine it would be interesting. Well, I think the greatest insight um, is always to be continually confronted with the idiosyncrasy of your children. Every child is an individual. Um, my child is a, you know, is a boy. Um, and in some ways, you know, you can, you can look at what the way he reads and say, oh, he kind of reads like a boy, but then he'll surprise me and say, you know, and pick up something else. I mean, I'm, I'm a big believer in having, a, you will not be surprised to hear this, a giant variety of books. Okay. Um, I don't, you know, push particular books on him. I let him choose. I want him to love reading. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm, I have constant variety around. And what he picks up, one book to the next might be completely different. He might not follow a pattern. He's perfectly capable of surprising me. Um, and it, it, even in, in all different kinds of ways, you know, he'll he'll pick up a book that is, I would think, wow, that's going to be very challenging for him. And he'll just be fascinated by it. Um, and, you know, think, oh, that book, that book is a little bit younger than I thought he would pick up. Uh -huh. But there he is involved with it and loving it. And I, I and as long as that's true, I'm happy. Great. Variety really is yeah. so important. And also not making assumptions. Mm -hmm. I don't make assumptions that just because he is a, quote, you know, 12-year-old mm -hmm. boy, he won't like this or he or he will like that. You know, I, I try to give him room to be more of a complete human. <laughs> do you ever give him manuscripts to read and comment on? <laughs> no, I do not do that. That is not okay. my philosophy. <laughs> Are there any new authors coming onto the scene you would like our listeners to know about? Well, I, I hear that you're about to talk to one of my favorite new authors, which Ooh, is Mike Jung. Yes, you um, heard. <laughs> who is just a delight in every way. And I think everyone in the world should know him and love him as I know and love him. Um, he is just such a burbling pot of literary joy. Uh, I really, I hardly ever have met somebody who is puts as much of his full emotional self um, into his writing and into the way he talks about his writing. Um, he's just incredibly charming. And I think Unidentified Suburban Object is an incredible novel. It's, it's got an in incredible surprise in it. I think it makes you think about and see and understand race um, in a way that few books I've read have made me think. And... Um, I also think it's very, very funny. <laughs> he does seem really funny. We're yeah. so looking forward to talking with him. Yeah. As part of, we talk about diversity and you, different voices, you're also known for extending your reach around the world and getting authors from around the world and books in translation. Could you talk about why you see that as so vital? Sure. I mean, I think it's, I think it's part and parcel of the same thing, which is we're just getting at human stories emphasizes our connectedness. You know, I did a, a book called Sanir and, Yon and Yonatan, um, which was about an Israeli and a Palestinian boy uh, becoming friends in a hospital. Um, sometimes you just recognize things like friendship. Friendship knows no borders. You know, friendship knows no ethnicity. Um, I think those are incredibly moving things to experience as a person and as a reader. Right, and the struggles of childhood it makes me think so vividly of Francisco and his work. We'll be talking to Francisco. Oh, absolutely. I mean, Francisco um, just has an amazing way of imbuing his characters with a full life. Um, so, you know, you forget if it's Marcelo in the real world. Um, you know, it's, it's not important that um, Marcelo thinks in slightly different ways ways, um, except that it helps you think in slightly different ways. Um, you know, it's not, it, it's not the main thing 
that his family has a Mexican-American background. Um, that is the detail and the, the richness and the depth of the setting. Um, but it doesn't stand apart from the stories. Um, and he's just such a great writer. He really is. He really is. And last, before we let you go, you're the um, fellow who brought J.K. Rowling to the United States. I am. Which yes. is quite a feather in your cap. I did that. <laughs> Not many people have that feather in their cap. But I did that. I want to just jump in and say, um, out of this belief that um, bringing, I thought that was an incredibly British story when I read Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. I thought, wow, I love this. This is so British. Um <laughs> You know, and that was part of our, part of what I loved about it—the you know British school setting, all the different rules, the the different social stratification, um, the food, the food, <laughs> yeah, or lack of it for <laughs> Harry at the beginning. Um, and uh, you know, I, I didn't think that people would find that off-putting. You know, I thought people would find that rich and delicious and uh, fabulous. And you, they did. You see? were right. Yes. Okay. We're going to listen to you, Arthur. Yeah, I see that. <laughs> well, thank you, Arthur. Sure. Is there anything else before we let you go that you'd like to add? Oh, you got, you know, three hours. I have plenty more to say. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, we always have time for you, so we hope you'll come back. Okay. Thank Bye. you, Arthur. Francisco is joining us by phone now. Thank you so much for talking with us. You're welcome. Thank you. Francisco, I have to start with the very compelling story of your childhood. Could you sure. just begin with the challenges your young mother faced and take us through the incredible odyssey of your childhood? Well, my mother was uh, um, a single mother uh, in uh, uh, Tampico, Mexico. Um, I never knew my uh, my natural father. She just uh, happened to get pregnant, and it was not a um, not something that was very acceptable in Mexico at the time. Uh, so my grandfather, when she was beginning to show her pregnancies, sent her to a, a, a neighboring city where they had a uh, a convent uh, where nuns would take care of uh, women who had. Uh, uh, taking a bad step, dieron el mal paso, it says in Spanish. The babies were given up for adoption, and then that was sort of the plan. My mother was supposed to return. Everybody was going to be told that she had been away visiting her her sister in in Detroit, Michigan, and nobody would know anything. Uh, but at the last moment, my mother changed her um, her mind and decided not to give me up for adoption. And eventually, my you know my grandfather. Uh, accepted uh, her daughter and and me, and uh, I grew up in in Tampico for six years until uh, Charlie Stork, an American citizen of Dutch descent, was traveling through Mexico, met my mother, and uh, fell in love and adopted me, and decided a few years mm -hmm. later to to bring his family to uh, the United States, where I could learn English and grow up. And so we came to El Paso, Texas. Um, I guess the the, um, the real hardship starts <laughs> more or less there. A few years later, Charlie Stork uh, had an automobile accident, and so we just uh, died. And it was just my mother and myself. And we um, decided that she decided that she wanted to continue living in the United States. Um, we didn't have. Uh, uh, much money, so we had to live in in, in the subsidized housing, or the projects of El Paso, we called them. And um, eventually, I, I um, was able to go to to a Jesuit high school uh, where I got a, a speech scholarship, and little by little learned, you know, uh, that I was uh, I was that I was smart enough to to make it there. Uh, and for a long time, I lived these kind of two lives. One of them, the very orderly life of the of Jesuit High School, uh, which is very uh, a strict school, and and then my kind of my weekend life in the living in the projects. Um, 
trying to stay away from trouble and mm-hmm. trying to go unnoticed. So that was that was sort of my up, right. upbringing. Were you the only one of your friends in the projects who went yes. to the school? Yes, I was. I was the, uh, um, you know, and eventually I, I had to become, I had to like learn. I couldn't go unnoticed for too long, so I had to make friends with, with the kids in the projects. And, um, you know, I couldn't really show them that I was, <laughs> let them know that I was smart because I wasn't really accepted. Uh, and I, we did have these, kind of, I did have these kind of double lives where I was kind of, did kind of, yeah. did uh, high risk activities <laughs> during the weekend, and then and then went back to my 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 life uh, during the week, and you know studied without too many people knowing about it. What was it like for your with your friends at school? That must have been tough as well, fitting in there. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that it was it was that wasn't that wasn't too bad, you know. I mean, one of those the. Um, Everybody kind of looked the same at Jesuit High. We have to wear a little. We have to wear a tie and and sort of a, you know kind of similar pants and so forth. And um, so somebody, nobody really knew you know uh, how I got there. I, I took a bus and 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 got there. And there were and, you know and Jesuit High School accepted kids from from different parts. I remember that there were kids that came all the way from Juarez to, uh, to go to to go to the high school. So it was oh. it was a, actually it was a very good environment and. Um, and I was accepted by the by the teachers and, and taken under their wing, and eventually they convinced me that it was, you know, it's okay to be myself. <laughs> so actually, yeah. that was that was a very good period in my life, that little high school. Oh, and I think your creative writing began to blossom there. Is that correct? Yes, I mean, I think that that's the um, you know I, I love to read, and I and I was encouraged to um, I was encouraged to read. I was giving lists, you know, of. Uh, I remember the librarian gave me a list uh, from A to Z of all the of all the books that a uh, uh, somebody who wanted to be a writer should read. And so, you know, I started off with Antigone and it slowly made my way to sort of the Greek, you know, the two pages long book. Um, <laughs> That's wonderful. And by this point, you owned a typewriter. A typewriter was actually given to me when I was uh, when I was around. Seven from my, that was a birthday present for my from Charlie Stork, my my father, my adoptive father. I call him my father. Um, and uh, you know, at that point, I, I declared that I wanted to be a writer. So he he got me this typewriter. Um, and um, that afternoon, I tried to I tried to start my novel and got to about half a page and decided <laughs> it was kind of hard. It was harder than I thought. <laughs> Oh, that's great. Uh, so ultimately, Francisco, you studied Latin American literature right. at Harvard, uh, which I think is pretty darn cool. However, you found it a little dry and academic. Do you want to tell us about that time in your life? Yes, I mean, I would. So I went to. I got a, I got a scholarship into Spring Hill College from uh, the Jesuit High School. Gave a scholarship to one student to go to one of their Jesuit colleges, and I went to Spring Hill College in Mobile, Alabama. Um, you know, with that tuition paid and um, and living expenses, and I studied English and philosophy, and and from there, um, in my senior year, I applied and got a a Danforth fellowship, which is um, basically a you know tuition and living expenses to any university that would take you, and I applied to different places, and uh, Harvard, you know, accepted me um, to their Graduate School of Arts and Sciences. I was, you know, I always wanted to be a writer, and Harvard had some great, um, great teachers there. Octavio Paz, the, the Nobel laureate from Mexico, was was there, and he didn't have the Nobel at that time, but Nobel, um, and other and other great uh, other great writers. So I thought it'd be a wonderful place to learn how to write. And um, when I got there, and and lo and behold, the kind of writing that that I was being asked to do was very different than than what I had imagined. It was this very very scholarly, very um, um, very type of articles that I just didn't find very relevant. You know, I mean, you would study these great books like Cervantes and and um, and 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 really didn't didn't get it what at the heart of what of what they were saying, but rather you know things that only a few other people would be be interested in. So after after four years, um, 
I decided that that I needed that that wasn't for me and that I I I wasn't wasn't doing the writing that I wanted to do. So I went to for some reason I thought that it would be easier for me to do that in uh, as a lawyer. So I went to <laughs> I went to law school at Columbia Law School and um, was surprised that it was even harder to write. <laughs> oh, I'm not surprised. What what year was this about? Let's what see. Year I was in 1970. 79, I went to law school. I, I entered okay. Harvard in 1975. Um, I skipped the draft by, by like a few months. I was, num I was number six on the, uh, on the list, at number 26 on the list. And I think that when they got to number 23, they stopped it. You know? So I had a draft for the, mm. for the Vietnam War. Gosh. I'd love to talk about your latest novel, The Memory sure. of Light. Uh, that draws upon your own experiences with depression. And I would, you know, like for you to tell our listeners first about a little bit about the book and why you decided to write it and sort of what you went through emotionally working on that book. Yeah, I think that the um about four years ago, actually my my wonderful editor, Cheryl Klein, uh, you know, suggested that I uh she said, "Why don't you write a book about depression?" I, I had written some, some, some uh, articles in my in my uh, my website, uh, kind of dealing with depression and my own struggles struggles with it, with bipolar disorder, which I was diagnosed about ten years ago, and and before that, you know, sort of the depression, and um, and so you know, we should write something about recovering from depression because that's not something that. That's really out, you know. Not that many books are out there that deal with the recovery process. I mean, there's a whole bunch of books that deal with the with the journey towards the rock bottom, you know, of of attempted suicide or suicide, or you know, of, and, and describing all the um, how painful the, the the illness is. But but not that many that deal kind of deal with the struggle of like um, towards towards healing and recovery, and so. I thought that was a that was a great idea, and that I could I, you know, I started to do that, and um, utilized in many ways sort of the, the the many things that I had that I had done to to try to stay um, to start to try to function as a lawyer and as a you know as a, as a father of two kids and so forth through through the years uh, with depression, uh, and I you know the, all the reading that I had done and all the kind of uh, wisdom, I guess, that I had picked up along the way. Yeah. Um, so, so I started. To, you know, I, I I wrote the book. Took about took about four years to write. Um, some of it was, you know, some of it was 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 the um, was was hard having in a way having to relive uh, some of those things that that uh, that Vicky went through, and I think it, it took me a little while to kind of. A few tries, maybe a couple of drafts, to kind of realize that I really wasn't getting at, you know, what uh, what Vicky, what I had gone through, and um, and to reach, you know, to reach a point of self honesty, and then to try to convert that into a into a character. Um, you know, it, it took a while, and, but I think I eventually, eventually got there, and, and you know. Um, the other thing was sort of the, the, the craftsmanship aspect of it, because it's it's difficult to write a book uh, a book about depression that's not depressing, you know. And and so we spend <laughs> spend a lot of time and and trying to make this a, a, a hopeful, positive book, you know. Um, uh, that uh, that also you know reflects reflected my own experience. I absolutely think you succeeded there, and I wondered if you would mind reading a passage from sure. the book. I am going. To, I'm going to read you the the um, the prologue from the book. It's it, it's a it's a letter that that Vicky writes uh, for her nana, and uh, just before she tries to commit suicide, and uh, it's it starts. That's the, that's where the book starts, and then after that, it jumps to Vicky at the hospital. So. Here's the letter. Nana, I tried to write you in Spanish, but my Español no es muy bueno en este momento. So I try in English. If you're reading this, it's because you found a tape to the back of Mama's painting. 
take the painting with you to Mexico and, and the climbing pink roses will remind you of Mama and maybe of me too. I know you're sad now as you read this. I wish I could tell you not to be triste, but I know you. Think of something happy and funny, like the time I finally got you to go in the pool because it was good for your arthritis. Remember how I laughed and, and you screeched when we went in? How you held on to me for dear life? That Spanish word I never heard you say before when I let go of you? Nana, I want to tell you this. Please, please don't think that I don't love you or that I don't love Becca or Father or Barbara either. I held up from doing this for a long, long time because I knew how bad you and everyone would feel. But the love I have for you doesn't stop the hurt I feel inside. I'm sorry, my Nana. I love you. It gave Mama peace to know you would be there to take care of me and Becca. And you did. You took care of me like your own daughter. Thank you. Gracias, mi nana. I better go. I'm getting real sleepy, and I want to tape this up while I still can. Love you, Vicky. Oh, thank you, Francisco. I have to say I was stunned when I realized that that was a letter that was written by someone who had, was trying to take their own life. What caused you to write from the perspective of a girl instead of a boy? Um, you know, I think that, that um, I, I, I think it was good for me to have a little bit of separation, <laughs> you know, between mm -hmm. uh, my, the character that I was creating and, 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 and myself. And, and, and I think that that, um, if I if I were, if I were a boy, I would kind of try to I, as I wrote, I, I might imagine me imagine myself. <laughs> you know, when you're writing, when you're writing, sometimes you have a picture in your mind of what the, what the character looks like. And I think it was a, it was it was better for me to have a, a girl because I would I could be her, but not but not be her completely. Mm -hmm. um, and I and I think that 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 was. Um, I think that was a good decision. I, 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 I Vicky is a, is, a, is a good person. Yeah. yeah, she is. So what do you hope your young readers you know, take away from this book and your other novels that often deal with kids who feel alone and shut out and marginalized for one reason or another? Well, you know, I, I, one of the things I, you know, I say in, in, the, in, the, uh, in the epilogue of the, of the book that when I was at, when I was at Harvard, um, I, I I myself uh, attempted suicide and found myself in, in in like a similar situation with with Vicky, and one of the reasons that you know I discovered was that talking to the doctors and so forth afterwards is that really that that was kind of a a symptom of of something that I had that of an illness that had been taking place in me for a long long time and. Uh, probably since I was since my my adopted father died when I was you know 13, um, and I think that that had I been able to share what I was feeling as I was growing up with somebody, I didn't share that with anybody because I was so ashamed you know of the feeling this um, feeling that I wasn't worth uh, what, what, that I that, that I wasn't worth it you know and 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 feeling ashamed of myself. Um, which is which are some of all of the things that depression causes you to uh, to feel, but had I think had I been able to have more uh, more of a sense that that it was okay to talk about this, I think that that maybe that um, that that attempt that I tried to do in my twenties might not have happened. So, so I think that that's sort of one of the main things that I wanted this book to uh, to uh, to have is this is uh, because because. The book deals with 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 a young person trying to understand uh, Vicky trying to understand the illness and um, and and describes the thoughts that Vicky has and and there's acceptance of Vicky by the other people and the the other the other patients in the hospital and by the doctor that 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 uh, that would create kind of like a comfort zone for for people who um, who are feeling these things to to realize that it's um, um, 
it's okay to ask for help and that there is that there is kind of hope you know um the whole book is really is really about hope and how hope comes and and the struggle to uh to maintain it so for the, for the people who suffer from depression i i hope that the book is a vehicle for hope and for those who um who are fortunate enough to to already have hope in their lives um i hope the book helps them to uh, not take it for granted thank you so much francisco it's just so moving and um we're grateful you're so brave and a trailblazer here because i'm sure your work is not just so rich in in uh art but just in um helping you know as you say bring hope to people is there anything else you want to share with us today before we let you go only that you know i'm very grateful for for scholastic for taking a for taking a chance on this book and some of my other books <laughs> uh, <laughs> and uh i i really um uh i'm really grateful for to my editor and to cheryl and to and to arthur for um uh for their help that they've, they've given me and them you know in, in, in bringing this out. So thank you very much. I have to say uh, on behalf of Scholastic, I am so proud of our book editors here. They're remarkable, as are you, and, and thank you again. Thank you very much. Okay. Bye-bye. Okay, so long. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, you're very welcome, Suzanne. I'm really glad to be here. Okay, terrific. Uh, so I have a question for you. Um, on your blog, you describe yourself as the Galactic Emperor. How did that name <laughs> yes, come <I> about? <laughs> All right, uh, you're busted well, here. <laughs> I, I mean, the, the, you know, the easy, the easy explanation is to say that I'm an egomaniac, which yeah. is, I don't know, it's for other people to judge if that's true. Um, I, I, you know, I was first, when I was first getting online, I was, trying to follow all the sort of standard advice about establishing a presence, you know, create a tone for what your public voice is going to be like. And, um, and I, and I went a hundred percent in the direction of like silly and mildly self-aggrandizing. So, um, galactic emperor, you know, there's, there's definitely some irony behind that. <laughs> some, uh, I'm anything but a galactic emperor. Um, so, uh, it was, uh, I think I was trying to poke fun at myself more than anything else, you know, in a, in a gentle, not in a spirited way, but, um, just to, just to suggest that I'm not taking myself too seriously, which I think matches, uh, the tone of my books where I try to write things that are meaningful, but they have a lot of humor behind them as well. Yeah. We've heard from Arthur that you're very funny, which we love. Oh, uh, <laughs> and I wanted to, um, you know, start here with your debut novel before we get into your book that's on the horizon um geeks girls and secret identities that made yes. such a splash and you know could you tell our listeners a little bit about the book and you know what age group you were directing the book toward and the responses that you've gotten from readers that have surprised you sure um well geeks girls and secret identities it's uh it's a story of a boy named vincent Wu. um who is um, the the biggest fan of his hometown superhero, Captain Stupendous. And uh, what happens is that Captain Stupendous apparently forgets how to be a superhero, and it's a big mystery. And Vincent and his friends, because um, they are the captain's biggest fans, turn out to be the only ones who can help him how to remem remember how to be a superhero. Um, and it, it's meant for middle-grade readers because uh, I, I, I knew pretty much when, from the time I started writing novels that um, that it was going to be, I was aiming for that age group, from 8 to 12-year-old readers, because that's just where my voice seems to lie, and that was a, that was a meaningful moment of time in my life. So um, that the, the reader responses that I've gotten, I don't know that I've been terribly surprised beyond the fact that it's just great that people have read the book at all. Um, <laughs> yeah. there, there, there's been... Um, the, the surprise is, uh, I, I, if I, I guess I could say I was surprised at just how overall positive the reaction has been, because um, I've gotten a lot of a lot of really really enthusiastic feedback from readers saying I love this book, or, or you know it's like it's really fun and fast paced, and um, and that was what I was going for, and I, I wanted to write a book that was 
again, funny and, and heartfelt at the same time. So something that was irreverent and emotionally meaningful. And I think that the response from readers has generally uh, been that I succeeded. So um, as someone who's a little self-deprecating and, and sometimes just the tiniest bit insecure, it's, it's nice to hear that, like, I succeeded. Okay, so Galactic Emperor is a title that's well-earned. <laughs> well, yeah, well, I don't know. Again, I don't know. <laughs> well, tell us about your own childhood and some of, you know, the experiences you had that might have played a little bit into that book. Oh, sure, sure. Um, uh, my, my childhood experiences, there are, there are some ways in which my, um, my childhood played very directly into the creation of Geeks because um, – Vincent is not an autobiographical character, but there are ways in which he is very much like me in that, um, you know, like Vincent, I had a, a, a very small circle of close friends um, when I was younger. Um, like Vincent, I, I wasn't uh, a fan of a, you know, a literally existing superhero because we live in the real world and whatnot, but um, I was a big, big fan of superhero comic books. And so, um, like, fandom in that way was something that I was very much into. And so, um, both of those those elements played very deeply into the creation of this book because I, I sort of poured it over my you know superhero comic book fandom into this idea of, of fandom of real superheroes and then the friendship dynamics between um, Vincent and George and Max some of those were very much inspired by dynamics with with uh, my own circle of friends at the time and um, Vincent has some insecurities about who he is and what his place is in the world and what his standing is with his friends, which are, I think, you know, common concerns of, of kids of that age. Um, and one of the, one of the brilliant things about working with Arthur Levine as an editor is that he, um, with both of my books so far, he's been able to help me very closely pinpoint what the book is about at, at its emotional core. And with geeks, um, we were talking about it at one point and he said, you know, this, I think that what this book is about is about a boy who feels um, un unknown and unloved and, un and, and incapable, but discovers that he is um, very much loved and very much capable and very much needed. And, and that's how he discovers his place in the world. And, um, and Arthur's brilliant. And that's one of the ways in which he was brilliant. Cause he said that and I said, Oh yeah, that's right. That's what it is. Exactly. Ah, oh, that's pretty great. <laughs> All right. That's pretty good. Yeah, yeah. 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 All right. Yeah, well, then... he's, he's not terrible at his job, right? <laughs> no, I, that's what I've heard. Uh, all <laughs> right. Now, let's talk about Unidentified Suburban Object. That's your newest book, and it's very exciting. We're yeah. thrilled that that's out. And talk about that thank a bit. You. Yeah, congratulations. Sure. Um, thank you very much. I'm, I'm really excited about it. I, I'm, uh, I'm, I mean, I'm thrilled and gratified by just how much support Scholastic's been I'm putting behind it. There's been a lot of enthusiasm, which has been great. Um, and it, it's a uh, so unidentified suburban object. It's the story of a 12-year-old uh, Korean-American girl named Chloe Cho, and she lives in, in a town um, that is not very ethnically or racially diverse, um, which, which again, is, is sort of mirrored by uh, my experience of growing up uh, as, as a, as a preteen and an adolescent. And she's exploring her racial heritage for the very first time in her life, um, and her parents are being a little obstructionist about it. They are not helping her. And because she lives in a town where she is the only Korean-American person, and in fact the only person of color, she doesn't have a lot of help from the people outside of her family. Um, and then uh, the, she, what happens is that she discovers a very big secret about her, her family's history that her parents have been keeping for her, and it sort of upends her entire sense of self. So that, um, in a nutshell, is what the book is about. There's kind of a big twist in the middle of the book, yeah. which I don't really want to spoil the twist. Oh, well, maybe I could. Um, <laughs> is that I, a black I line the on, the, on the back of the book? Like, no, we're not going to tell you. You have to read it. <laughs> <laughs> right. Isn't that great? Isn't yes, that I love that. I love that. <laughs> yeah, so that's, um, that's, that's actually what the book is about. It's, it's, you know, there, there is a fantasy element to the book. Um, but it's mostly at, at its core. The book is really about like discovering who you are, uh, understanding what your family history is and what it means about you. Um, you know why and how we become friends with the people that we do. And uh, and I, I feel very proud of the book. I feel like it's a big step forward from my first book, which I also feel very proud of. And so. That's the way you want it to go, right? You want to be yeah. getting better yes. with each book that you write. Absolutely. I have to say, I love your description yeah. of dumplings. 
I'm a big fan of dumplings. Oh, right. <laughs> it's like, you. wow, I want to eat these. <laughs> Especially well, the ones thank in the recipe, you. maybe not the ones the kids made. But, um, so, <laughs> right. uh, so do you want to, why don't you read, if you wouldn't mind, right here, a, a passage from Unidentified Suburban Object. Sure, sure. So uh, the passage I've picked is actually, it's fairly late in the book. Um, but, um, you know, because Chloe is, uh, she, she's exploring her racial heritage and she lives in a, a place that's not very racially diverse, um, she's confronting questions of, like, what does racial identity mean? And, and there's a scene late in the book where she, she talks to her school librarian, and her school librarian, who is, um, I should say, is modeled after Nikki Mudge, the New, New England sales rep for Scholastic, and, and, <laughs> and named after Nikki, um, this, this librarian introduces her to the topic of reading science fiction books and examining them for, for racial issues. And so what I'm going to read is, um, uh, is a moment where Chloe has been going through some troubles with her best friend, Shelley, and, um, and she discusses these science fiction books, specifically the covers with her, okay? Okay. So here we go. Starting with Chloe. Have you read this? I waved a handful of potato chips as I held up the book I was reading. Interstellar Terror? The title sucks, but the book's actually pretty good. Chloe, what are you doing? I'm reading this book. It's about these aliens who come to Earth that, Chloe, introduce an alien virus into the water supply. And you know what? The heroes in these movies, the people who save the world, they're all white people. All of them. Chloe. And when there are human-looking aliens, they're also all white people. Why don't any of the aliens who look like white people get killed? Chloe, where are the Korean people? Why is it always a white person who saves the world? Why are the aliens always the bad guys? I waved my arms, lost my balance, and almost fell out of my chair. Earth to Chloe, what are you doing? I decided to look at Shelly. Earth to Chloe, very appropriate. What do you mean, very appropriate? I've texted you about a thousand times. Know how many times you've texted back? I crammed a handful of potato chips into my mouth and stared at Shelly, chewing slowly. She made a circle with her thumb and index finger and stuck it in my face. Zero, she said. Some best friend, huh? You're an okay best friend. I mean you. Shelly threw her hands up in the air. What are you? Hey, wait, I said as she grabbed the book out of my hands, looked around for something to use as a bookmark, then defiantly snapped it shut without using the bookmark. I'm reading that. Just lost my place. How's that? That's great. Uh, I okay. love the, the bond between the two. It's it's really, that's terrific. Thank you, Mike. Uh, you're welcome. Yeah, all right. So uh, we, we also know that you're a founding member of the We Need Diverse Books team. You're very proud yes, of that as well, rightly so. Mm -hmm. And why is this initiative so important to you in particular? Well, you know, I didn't, I didn't know how important it was to me until I was actually invited to join the team. Um, but, but Eleno, who's the, one of the founders and the president of the organization, um, we, we've been friends for a long time, and he's actually been one of my critique partners for years. And so um, we've been, we, you know, we've been talking about these, these kinds of issues um, ever since we both have been seeking publication back from our early pre-agency days. So it was on my mind. But um, it was only when I was invited to join the organization that I thought about it in more critical terms. Um, and, and it was partly spurred by um, realizations about my own life and that there, there are these issues of identity and, and belonging and being others that I've coped with but have not really confronted, you know, for, for the bulk of my life. And I'm, and I'm realizing that they feel very much like unexplored territory, unfinished business. And... The other reason that it feels so important to me is that um, as I've been writing, and my writing has been uh, inspired uh, to, a, to a pretty high degree by the fact that I became a father, and that was when I started writing Geek, um, and these questions of, well, uh, what kind of books are my children reading, and are they seeing themselves represented in these books? And, and, uh, and it was hard. It, it became impossible, actually, to not consider that with a very critical eye. And so... Um, when I was looking for books for my for my daughter, um, my daughter was born. You know, she's nine, so that was right about when I started writing my first book. I was realizing, wow, there there are not very many books about mixed race kids, and which is what she is. She's half Korean, and um, and it was it was difficult because I would search, and I just realized there's not a lot, a lot available for her. Um, and so I I was writing a book like that, and I want to continue writing those kinds of books. But I also feel like this is this is a gap. This is a big gap, not for my just for my daughter, but for all of our kids and all of our readers. And as I became 
more involved in the organization and as I became more, more how would I describe it, more awake, you know, more sort of socially and, and critically awake to these issues that I'd been asleep to before, I, it, 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 became, it became impossible to stop thinking about how important it is and how big these issues are and how important it is that we engage with them and, and try to close that gap. Gee, that's powerful. I love that, Mike. Thanks. Yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> what are you what are you working on now? Uh, I'm working on what I hope will become my third book with with uh, Arthur Adelbein, both in Scholastic. Um, I'm crossing my fingers for that. Okay. Uh, it, a, <laughs> we'll put it, in a good word for you. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Um, it's it's a uh, it's you know my I feel like my my writing is evolving in an interesting way because when I when I wrote Geek, I definitely was was wanting to write like a superhero book, superheroes, you know, muscular guys and spandex and supervillains and giant robots. And, uh, and it was all about like crash bang sort of stories, which is what I want to go back to eventually. Um, but then when I wrote uh, USO, it, it was, it became um, surprisingly to me, surprisingly uh, personal and conversational. And there's a way in which the book reads very much as a, a you know, contemporary realistic story. And what the manuscript I'm working on now is a 100% straightforward contemporary realistic story, and it's about um, it's about two boys, uh, and one of their best friends, and, and 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 again mirroring a lot of my own experiences in childhood. They are pretty much their only close friends, each other, um, and one of them is going to move away at the end of the school year, and so it's these two boys coming to grips with the process of um, learning how to say goodbye to each other, and and learning how to be um, to show their feelings, to express their feelings, and show affection for each other, especially in this context where they have limited time to figure it out. Um, and the reason, one of the reasons that I'm writing this book is because I, I do feel like this is a conundrum for boys uh -huh. and for men in our society as yes. well. You know, we, we, on a societal level, we cope with this idea of toxic masculinity very much, and there are things that are verboten for boys and men to do. Being emotional is one of those things. Being visibly emotional, being affectionate, ex you know, expressing love and affection for each other is something that um, that is uh, a, a real obstacle. There are obstacles placed in the way of boys and men doing that. And so I want to explore that idea. And then on the fun end of it, um, both of these these boys are in marching band, which is something that I did when I was younger. They're both <laughs> huge comic book fans, which again, I was a huge comic book fan when I was younger. And so um, that that's what I'm hoping is going to be book number three. Oh, that's super. Thank you, Mike, so much. It's been such a pleasure to talk with you. Is there anything else you'd like to add before we let you go? I do think that there are you know, big systemic issues that it's important for all of us to work on um, as an industry and, 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 and as a society. Um, and I, I'm glad to be involved in that kind of work because it's difficult and challenging. Um, and at the same time, I feel really grateful and appreciative for how things are going for me individually. So, um, yeah, it's, 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 a, it's, it's an exciting and interesting time for me. Oh, well, congratulations again. And all of the accolades are well-deserved. So keep going. Oh, thank you so much. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mike. And thank you for joining us and for sharing in our mission at Scholastic, where we believe that the right book in a child's hands can open a world of possible. Special thanks to producer Megan K. Safer, sound mixer and editor Daniel Jordan, and music composer Lucas Elliott Eberl. I'm Suzanne McCabe. We look forward to sharing more Scholastic Reads next time.